Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy Magazine. You're listening to Global Reboot, a podcast in partnership with the Doha Forum, where we examine one big problem every week and look at ways to solve it. Today, we're focusing on human rights. On the one hand, it can seem like so many aspects of the world are progressing. We have better medicine to keep us safe from disease. Technology makes communication easier than it's ever been. Globalization has made the world smaller. But progress isn't always even, and it's certainly not equal. Even as humanity has achieved so much and the world has advanced as much as it has, Human rights have regressed in many parts of the world, certainly when you consider that the main cause for this regression is human behavior. Racism continues to rear its ugly head. Democracy is under attack, and this means many sections of society are under attack as well. Recourse isn't always easy. After all, authoritarians, criminals, and wrongdoers have also gotten smarter and better at evading laws and eradicating norms. The question is what to do. My guest today is an outspoken advocate on these issues. He is the former Commissioner for Human Rights at the United Nations. Zaid Rad Al-Hussein held that role from 2014 to 2018, and then he didn't seek a second term. You'll hear the reason why shortly. It's actually a great story. Prince Zaid, as his title suggests, is part of the Jordanian royal family and a storied diplomat with postings in Mexico, the United States, and the United Nations. As always, if you like what you're hearing or not, feel free to rate us or leave comments. For now, here's the interview. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Let me begin with human rights. Um, do you feel, when you look around the world, that the state of human rights has improved? Do you spot a trend line or do you think that things are looking worse than they were if you look at the last couple of decades or so? It's not a question of either or. Both uh, manifestations are happening. We have huge improvements in the rights of children, the rights of women, the rights of indigenous persons to a certain extent across the globe from where they were only a few decades ago. But at the same time, the power of people realizing their rights, questioning the decisions of their own governments, requiring of their own governments to uphold their own legal obligations, for many, let's say, less than competent governments is a threat. And so there is a pushback. Good governance is very hard to achieve, not impossible. And if it is to be achieved well, you must take into consideration the rights of all your peoples, even those who structurally are discriminated against, perhaps not entirely uh, when it comes to the law, but in practice is often the case in many, many countries. You know, take racism, for instance. No country has decoded it or found a proper antidote for how to deal with it. Few countries know how to deal with xenophobia. We still have rampant chauvinism around the world. So the human condition is a complex one. And we have contradictions constantly in being. And the power of human rights is immense. Given what you say and how nuanced the progress of human rights is in various parts of the world, and there are advances in some areas and degradations in others, 
Which parts of the world worry you the most on that front right now? Well, I mean, clearly in the conflict zones, you have the entire sort of gamut of human rights <laughs> obligations and standards being, being not just ignored, but trampled upon, ripped apart. And so you see the, the worst forms of gross human rights violations in those contexts. But, you know, most conflicts, if not practically all of them, are the product of existing chronic human rights deficits. Um, people who have been deprived of uh, access to basic, a basic dignified life, to basic services. And so the, the thing is to deal with it. You have to confront these societies and say, can you afford to be a middle-income country when half your population, because they are indigenous in terms of their background, you know, are dispossessed of the basic health services to assure that your children under the age or their children under the age of five you know, are properly fed and have proper nutrition. And you're a middle-income country and you don't provide it. You know, so the thing is, we have to be intellectually honest. You know, the use of euphemisms to get around these issues, it's no longer good enough. And deeper down, a deeper down investigation of the troubles afflicting a society need to be brought to the surface and people need to be answerable. Now, you find in many countries that civil society is amazingly energetic. And the more energetic they are, the more likely that you're going to have a reaction. So they need to be complemented by the international press and supported by other human rights organizations. But even more than that, I would love it to one day hear the leaders of countries take their peers to task on the way they treat their own people. Mm. I mean, there's complete silence on this. Very example, rarely. Give us an example. I mean, you can take any... I, I, I used to comment most particularly in my, in my previous role, for instance, Duterte once made an abominable comment regarding women. This is the leader of the Philippines. The Philippines. Um, an outrageous comment regarding women in, in Mindanao and giving instructions to his soldiers. And no one said anything about it. I mean, there was a lot of comment, and there was press attention, and the human rights organizations said anything. But not one of the 193 heads of states and governments said anything. And the question is, why? And it's often like that. So hearing it from your peers would have an effect. You know, we talk about a world changing. Well, why don't we start with that? Perhaps that could take us some distance. But it also creates a different sort of energy because you're hardly going to make a comment about someone else's human rights record if you yourself, yourself are obviously exposed to criticism in the other direction. So it forces you to think about you know, cleaning up your own act, trying to sort the problems within your own society. And maybe you're um, answering your own question here in that yeah. leaders are afraid to be questioned by others so they don't question Well. That's why we need better leadership, yeah. We do. But can you imagine, can you imagine though, for instance, a company that refuses to be ex you know, audited externally? Uh, because it, you know, it's, it's never enjoyable in going through auditing, right? So, but I mean, can you imagine what board of directors would agree to it? Or right. you know, the shareholders who would agree to something? I mean, it, so why is it so impossible to imagine that we, we have an external audit of our own record?
So we're getting somewhere here in that you're proposing a world in which we have regulations the way we do for taxation for human rights. Well, we have regulations because we have eight core human rights treaties, sorry, nine core human rights treaties. And these impose obligations on states. These are not discretionary. This is not, you know, we talk about values. I honestly don't know what those values are. I mean, we have laws and it, it emerged, they've emerged from customary law, from custom, and also the experiences of two world wars. We have them. Right? So, so the question is, you as a state enter into them voluntarily. Your parliament sort of agrees to it, basically will adopt the treaty, the terms. And then, and then you're un, under an obligation to abide by them. And if you don't abide, if someone were to say, Ravi, you're the prime minister of country X, you have already agreed to these set of, of rights. Why are you not doing this in, in, with respect to this group or that group? And some countries will bristle and say, oh, no, 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 this is now, now you're crossing the line. Now this is a matter of sovereignty. And it's nonsense. It's a nonsense argument. The apartheid regime in South Africa used to claim that whenever the Organization of African Unity sponsored resolutions against it in the 1960s and 70s, this amounted to flagrant interference in the internal affairs of South Africa. And this logic was roundly rejected by the General Assembly. Criticism of one's record is not a tantamount to interference in that in that sense and so it's something that needs to be considered but these rules exist as you say these regulations exist these aspirations exist but it seems that most leaders feel like they can act with impunity and ultimately isn't that what matters here and and if i can then to move us towards the question of how do we change this how do we do better in terms of enforcing universal human rights? Well, I mean, it's first of all, recognizing that they are important. You know, it is, it is uh, very strange to me, for instance, that we don't have faculties of human rights in universities. You know, something so fundamentally important to a dignified existence. Mm. And you find a handful in the West with centers for human rights, which are lodged in the law school somewhere in the corner with three or four you know, cubicles. It, it's, it boggles the mind, really. Because, look, Ravi, human rights, I mean, it's so obvious, right? Mm. You don't think about it no. until one day you take your ATM card, you go to a machine, and suddenly you have no access to your account. Yeah? And then you, you sort of, you're told that your, your mortgage you know, has been basically canceled that you have no access to a loan, that your, your children are kicked out of school because of some new regulation, which means they're no lo longer eligible. Yeah? And so the, the obvious point, and I used to make this time and again, it's sort of like breathing. Mm. You know how many breaths you need to take every day to stay alive? I can't even imagine. It uh, must be thousands. About 22,000. Yeah? Wow. So you don't think about it. No. Until someone begins to strangle you, and then you know that if you're not drawing a breath in, in four minutes, you're done. And so we take it for granted until we somehow it's threatened. And then we understand that it's the only thing. It's the only thing that will matter to us, right? The key point is that you can't approach human rights in a selective form. 
you can't say, look, I am for women's rights. But by the way, when it comes to migrants, well, they're an exception. Now, it happens in a lot of countries, especially when you've seen in recent years. Right? So this sort of picking and choosing of what we'll, we'll work on and then to the exclusion of everything else or to exclusion of something that you're either all in or you're not in. But then aren't you worried? Because, I mean, what you're describing is this grand sort of humanist kind of notion of, of caring about human rights more generally. But if you think about, you know, sort of the, the Gandhian tradition of thinking of it, for example, but most sort of famous activists today are issue activists, you know, fighting for particular issues yeah. in particular communities. Yeah, actually, most of the frontline activists are not famous. They are immensely brave. And, you know, uh, remand centers around the world are filled with activists who sacrifice an enormous amount and have no attention whatsoever. Mm. You know, it's not a, it's not a fame issue. You, you know, that's the problem. Uh, mm. You know, there's this sort of fixation on shiny, sparkly, you know, sensation. I mean, the truth of the fact is that the heroes of the movement are those that are sacrificing a great deal and are, are in prisons around the world unknown to anyone but their families or their communities because of what they do. And it's immensely powerful because, you know, they basically undo that first <laughs> instinct that we have as humans, and that is the instinct of survival. And they're willing to, to forfeit that for the sake of a wider good without threatening anyone. Because you have to remember that you know, even the most violent extremist claims to be defending someone, but they're only defending their own at the expense of someone else. The whole point behind the human rights movement is I'm not threatening anyone beyond trying to you know, make them do the right thing, holding up a mirror to them, not threatening them, you know, defending the rights of all and, and not saying that somehow one group is more entitled to rights than everyone is. But there's some who historically have been disadvantaged that need to be given a particular attention. And that, I think, is, is very legitimate. You know, when you stepped down from your position as the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, you wrote a letter in which you said a second term, and I'm just going to quote you here, in the current geopolitical context might involve bending a knee in supplication, muting a statement of advocacy, lessening the independence and integrity of my voice, end quote. Do you, looking back at that, letter that you wrote to your colleagues back then. Does that still ring true to you? Yes, because I didn't even want to test the proposition of asking for a second term. Uh, so the High Commissioner's term is four years with a renewable, you know, another four years could be provided. But I sort of knew instinctively, first of all, that they're not going to consider it. I mean, there's almost no chance that they would consider it because I, I heard what they were saying to me. And so, Give us but, a flavor of that. No, I was told I was an enemy of this country, enemy of that. I think the Russians said I was insane. You know, each of the permanent members had reason to be angry with me. And I was angry with them, so that was fair. But, but if I were to have thought that, first of all, if I had the ambition to do it the second term and I thought that it was a chance, to do it. And I then had to sort of essentially lobby and go and see the permanent five 
it's, it's, it, was all, it would be almost inevitable that they would say to me, okay, I commission it. We'll, we'll think of it, but you've got to lay off this issue. We're not going to discuss Crimea. We're not going to discuss Tibet. We're not going to... Right, and they'll give you a long list of things that you shouldn't discuss in public, and I wasn't going to be prepared to do that. And so, you know, four years, I think, is the way to do it. I, I would think the logical... You know, it would be more logical to have a one six-year period. The Secretary General of the UN should have one six. There shouldn't be any renewables because implicit in it is this idea of exercising leverage over you when you're in the office. And there's even something that's almost sort of petty and cruel. Oh, it's sort of <laughs> cruelty. It's petty. They, they, you don't. You're not entitled to a UN pension until you've served five years. <laughs> so they give you a four-year <laughs> they give you a four-year limit. And as if to say, look, if you ever want a pension, you behave yourself. Yeah, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of ridiculous. You know? But the other thing is, look, Ravi, it's not a question of pressure from governments. I think honestly, you know, that's completely overblown. I mean, I, you know, most people can deal with pressure from governments. The, the real pressure is the pressure from the families of those who've suffered so, I mean, extreme, extreme forms of discrimination and violence. And they expect from you delivery. And you feel whatever you do, interviews like this, speeches, you know, reports, whatever you do, it can never even be close to being enough. And I think the feeling of inadequacy, of some sort of self-insufficiency is where the pressure comes from. And I think that's hard to deal with. Yeah. yeah. It is. Are there areas of progress now with, you know, a few years of distance between when you stepped down and today that you feel like you were able to improve the human condition in a certain place or in a certain area? Well, it, look, it's always been an extreme battle. You know, no great advance in terms of social justice, first of all, comes from a majority opinion suddenly developing. It comes usually a minority group saying, enough, and we have to change. And they're initially exposed to the most terrible vitriol. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to change, and slowly, slowly. And then within 10 years, suddenly you're in a different space altogether. And so I'm, I am hopeful you know, I see what's happening, for instance, in the European Union on environmental and social governance. We're about to see a revolution in this area. And the business landscape is going to change profoundly where human rights are concerned. And it's an immense change. The U.S. is still far behind, but the U.S. won't be left out of it. And so it just needs some to take leadership and, some, and then changes will come. It sometimes feels like we're in a moment where there's been this convergence of several crises all at once. So, you know, for example, right now we have the post-pandemic recovery. Of course, we're recovering from a truly historic era-defining disruption to our lives with the pandemic. We are also uh, clearly at a point where climate change is affecting so many people around the world in a way that you know people finally acknowledge and realize and it's coalescing you know a new generation of young activists who speak openly and very inspiringly i think about the problem that previous generations have handed over to them 
when you look at all of these connected cascading problems, do you think then that this would create empathy perhaps or some sort of a, a larger sense of mission among world leaders? Look, uh, it, you've raised a question which has different dimensions to it and so needs to be, they need, it needs to be sort of pulled apart and approached, I think, rather differently. It's hard to conceive of how it is that the people who've landed us into this terrible mess are somehow expected to lead us out. I mean, we ourselves have to be half mad to think it, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not perhaps willful, but it's recklessness. Yeah. What they have done, 193 leaders, plus others who lead international organizations, is frightful. It's fr and it should never have happened. Everything you spoke of right, is a symptom of something. And they're all connected. And there's a fundamental weakness that must be addressed. But it's not going to be them that will rescue us. It'll be other people who will rescue us because they themselves are, are almost incapable of seeing the harm that they've caused or incapable of understanding how to, how to deal with it. So let's take an example here. I mean, with the pandemic, which I remember when the pandemic began, the guidance was so clear. I mean, if you look at the IMF, for example, so many international bodies, they put numbers behind it and said, here's what it would cost to vaccinate the world. And then miraculously, scientists develop these amazing vaccines. And then equally miraculously, we fail to deliver them to the world. And there's, I would imagine, a profound sense of inequity um, if you're living in many countries in Africa or in South Asia. And so then there's a question then of trust. And you say we can't trust the leaders who brought us here. But then what do you do? Look, again, that is a symptom. You're absolutely right. I'm not disputing the point. But it's a symptom of, uh, uh, it's a symptom of the conditions with which we're having to deal with. There are rules and regulations for how governments ought to be conducting themselves. But if they're willfully ignored and they're disputed, or you have these notions of sovereignty thrown up and as a means of excusing why it is they're not doing what they ought to be doing, then we will, and it's sovereignty connected to some notion of prestige, right? Then we will continue to see this. I mean, look, it's not all like that. Take, for example, ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. There's a category of regulations when approved by ICAO, these regulations are implementable around the world, hard law, instantaneously. They're not debated in the U.S. Congress. They're not debated in the House of Commons, in the Jordanian Parliament, or anywhere else. Mm. Immediately. Enforceable. Why? Because no one wants to step onto a plane that then crashes into another plane. Mm. Right? So we accept it. Now, the world is imperiled by climate change. Why do we have to debate it endlessly? Why can't we think of it as a vehicle traveling through space, potentially coming apart, and we just do the right thing? I mean, it's sort of, it, 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 you get me going on this side, it would be a long interview, right? It doesn't make sense. We have a system 
it has to be abided by. There is a referee in part or a number of referees. They have to be listened to. And it's not, it's not big thinking that's required. It's actually small adjustments in the right areas. And then we can turn the corner on a lot of these things. We don't have to reinvent everything. It's just the right adjustments and, and a realization that laws exist for a reason. Certainly. So let me ask you this. You have seen a lot of suffering around the world. Um, you are also cognizant and aware of many problems in many parts of the world that you know, the average human being is not exposed to and maybe the average human being is smug in their lives and you know, doesn't need to deal with, with the human condition and the rest of the world. Knowing what you know, given what you've seen, you should be, I would imagine, either depressed or uh, <laughs> upset or have a sense of the world that is quite dire. And yet, you come across as optimistic and hopeful. Why? I was recently visiting a small island developing state. And they are suffering from the effects of climate change in a way that's really quite profound. For them, a rise in mean uh, global temperature, annual temperature to 1.5, this is above pre-industrial levels, is catastrophic. This is the Maldives, and we're headed to, at the moment, something like 2.7. You put a mask on and you go snorkeling and you look at the coral reefs, and they're all bleached, and the bleaching events occur now with such rapidity, such a high frequency, that the coral never recovers. And where there's no coral the fish begin to leave. I mean, you see this so clearly. And there were these two sisters who would go out from this, this town that we visited every week, take the dead coral out, put the live coral back in. They do this in the worst of weather, whether they're sick, whether they're not, not seeking fame, not being instructed to do it on their own. And you sort of look at them and you think, wow. And, and the, the, the upshot of this is that we now need to stop just endlessly talking about what's happening and why it's happening and much more focused on how to stop it the, in the detail of it, not just saying, well, governments need to do it or someone needs to do it. In the detail of how we're going to stop it. That's where we need to concentrate our efforts. That's where we need to bring AI to help us with solutions. That's why, whether you're in the private sector or civil society, you need to be involved. The question is, how in the detail of it are we going to stop what we see happening to the planet? And so that gives me hope. You know, there's two girls out every week in the reefs, changing the coral. It's probably much... <laughs> much more consequential than having someone like me talk about it. And I should maybe go out and find some patch and do the same. <laughs> On that note, Zaid, what a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
My thanks to His Royal Highness Zaid Rad Al Hussein. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor in Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Dan Efron, and Anissa Pazeshki. If you like what you're hearing, head over to foreignpolicy.com to sign up for our podcast newsletter. We will send you updates every so often on new shows, bonus content, and much more. And of course, if you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing to Foreign Policy. Global Reboot listeners can save 15% on their first month or year of FP access. Visit foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe, enter the code REBOOT at checkout to claim this offer. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening.